Welcome back, everyone, to Behavioral Science for Brands, a podcast where we bridge the gap between academia and marketing. Every other week, we sit down and decode the science behind some of America's most successful brands and the campaigns that power them. I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Chilton. Today, we're diving into diamonds, romance, and the wheels of fortune. No, not a trashy romance (laughs) novel. Let's get into it. So, Richard, we are getting a little romantic today. We're talking about something that most people think about for most of their lives, the moment they will get engaged to someone they love, and how will they show their love for that other person? Well, 100 years ago. 100 years ago, they could have done anything. They could have bought a, a washing machine or given someone a sapphire. It was not the case that everyone gave a diamond ring to their betrothed. And even today, not every country in the world does use a diamond ring. But the De Beers Diamond Mining Company has made it a standard, has made it the expected for so many countries across the globe. So let's dive into a little bit about the history We'll talk a little bit about the campaign, and then we'll get into the behavioral science that powers all of it. De Beers, primarily a diamond mining company, has been in business for over 100 years. Early in the 20th century, they realize they need to do something to increase demand for the product that they're mining. So they launch a massive marketing campaign with the goal to change the way people think about diamonds. So they engage NW Air Advertising Agency, and famously, the Air Agency puts Francis Garrity on the account. It's the mid-1940s. The world was a different place. The advertising industry was a different place. So Francis Garrity, working in what can only be described as a man's world, was put on only women products because she was a woman, was put up with De Beers as her main account. And when she comes up with the line, a diamond is forever, it was not universally accepted. It was not wildly understood that it would be the winner that it was today. But thankfully, we in 2023 are in a different world where we're not just assigning women to work on female brands and we're hopefully evolving past those that time. But the campaign is an undisputed success, one of the most celebrated campaigns of the 20th century. It helps the diamond industry to what it is today, over $80 billion per year, with over 50% of all diamond sales coming from the United States. And just to be clear, the marketing and the advertising campaign that we're going to dissect today that has been central to the creation of a diamond as an engagement ring It's not just a default. And in 2019, right before the pandemic, CEO of De Beers, Bruce Cleaver, said that they would spend another $180 million in that year alone to continue to build the association of diamonds as the choice for engagement rings. So this campaign, A Diamond is Forever, is cited as one of the most effective marketing campaigns of all time. So certainly, there's a lot going on here. If we take a look through a behavioral science lens, Richard, how, where can we start? How would we start to analyze it? Let's start with the line, the diamond is forever. I think because it's been such a long-standing line, because we've all heard it so many times, 
it has become normalised. But if you think about the individual words, it's quite a strange way of phrasing. You wouldn't normally say a diamond is forever. You'd say a diamond lasts forever. But I think it's that linguistic quirkiness that actually makes it quite powerful because it introduces a little bit of difficulty to understand. Mm. And as we talked about a while ago on an Economist episode, if you make it really easy for someone to understand, they tend to forget the communications. It's that um, resolution that makes it more memorable. So that's not speculation. There's a, a brilliant Daniel Oppenheimer study. So he's a psychologist at Princeton back from 2010. It's a very simple study. He gives people a list of words and attributes to remember. And sometimes these are written in a very simple, plain font. Other times they're written in a hardest to read font that is strongly italicized. And he finds that in that first group, the easy to read font, people remember 73% of the information, whereas in the hard-to-read setting, they remember 87%. Mm. So you've got, what's that, a 14% point increase in in, in memorability. So the first thing they do, and this is a tactic I think you see again and again with really powerful, really memorable strap lines, is they add in a slight mistake, you could say. They add in a little bit of linguistic quirkiness to boost that memorability. And so when your mind returns to it, you remember it with the quirkiness. You remember it as the unique phrase it was. Yes. And then there's also something else happening here. The agency and De Beers at the time understood that an engagement is a real-life moment, a milestone. And saying a diamond is forever is a little bit of statement about your love for the other person. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, then you're moving into these ideas of sunk cost effects. Yeah. Now, once you have expended a large amount of money or effort, what we really don't want to feel is that that money or effort's been wasted. So once we've expended money or time or effort, we will behave in illogically, we'll behave illogically to make sure that investment isn't wasted. So this phrase, a diamond is forever, really is unique linguistically because there is an element of surprise. It's not a diamond lasts forever. And, you know, it comes to mind that there's a gap between what you expect to hear and what really comes out that helps the line stick. Think different by Apple. Should be think differently. But think different just sticks in your mind in a way that you didn't expect it to. Yes, and powerfully, it is a representation of the point they're making. They are communicating differently. So I I feel Apple probably one of the most powerful uh, examples of this happening. Yeah, and we have an episode coming up soon where we're going to investigate Apple further. Yeah, of all the brands that we talk about, I think it's probably Apple that most consistently use insights from psychology just again and again and again. They come back to various different behavioral science tactics to promote the brand. Yeah, almost from its roots. I mean, Steve Jobs wrote a lot about how understanding consumers and understanding psychology helps them innovate 
authentically. Yes. And so I think, you know, it's just kind of built into the brand's yeah. DNA. And, and, and lots of brands talk about, understand consumers, but what they mean by that normally is just speculating about what motivates consumers. What's so interesting about Apple is they often use surprising insights from psychology that I think people wouldn't get to if they were just... Um, doing focus groups. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. If they were just doing regular exactly. qualitative and quantitative research. So an interesting linguistic trick kind of helps cement the line in the brains of buyers. But that's not all De Beers did to become this $80 billion a year industry. Yes, if that's all they'd done, it would have still been a very successful marketing example. But even Francis Geraghty's amazing line isn't the best thing that De Beers have done. Right. I think the best thing De Beers have done is apply an idea called anchoring. So the idea of anchoring is you throw out a number, an even irrelevant number, and that affects people's deliberations. So the example from De Beers would be they created a benchmark or anchor for how much people should spend of their salary in a diamond ring. So they went out and said, you should spend in Britain, too much, two yeah. months. Well, in Britain, it was always a month. Uh-huh. So, so Britain, maybe they don't think we're as generous <laughs> as the Americans. So for us, it was a month. More recently, it's become two months. I think it was always two months it, in America. Always two months in America. And in Japan, it's three months. Yes. I think they only launched in the 1980s in Japan. So there'd be no heritage of diamond rings for engagements in Japan. So there was no expected amount to spend. And they push their luck by setting it up at three months. Amazing. And now I think the Japanese spend more than any other country on their engagement rings. Now, the interesting thing here is it might feel like a very throwaway line, but there's lots of experimental evidence that suggests it's powerful. Probably the first experiment comes from Daniel Kahneman. He won the Nobel Prize back in 2002 for economics. And he ran his experiment in 1974. Very simple study, recruits a group of people, and they come into his lab. And then when they come to the lab, there is a wheel of fortune. So he spins this wheel and it ends up on a number. Mm-hmm. Now, Kahneman and his research partner, Amos Tversky, have rigged the wheel of fortune. So it either stops on 10 or it stops on 65. So roughly half, half by each number. Once the number stopped, he gets the participant to read out the number And then he asked the participant to estimate what proportion of countries in the UN are from Africa. And if the number has stopped at 10, the average guess is 25%. If the will of fortune is stopped at 65, the average guess is 45%. Amazing. Exactly. (laughs) Tiny little tweak, very different estimates. Now, Kahneman's argument for why this happens, he says none of the participants know the actual answer. And so, therefore, there is this grey zone of uncertainty. Now, obviously, people know it's not 100% and they know it's not 0%. But what Kahneman argues is if they have just seen the number 10, they know that number's too low, so they start adjusting upwards. Mm -hmm. And they stop once they hit the kind of lower bounds of that grey zone of uncertainty, so 25%. Whereas if their guess has been preceded by the number 65%, They take 65 as the the starting place, exactly. They know it's too high, so they start adjusting down. But they stop once they hit the top of that zone of of reasonable numbers. So Kahneman's argument is this original anchor 
sets the starting place for your deliberations. You're not fixed there. You will adjust from it, but you tend not to adjust enough. So come back to diamond rings. You throw out the number of one or two or three months salary. It's not that people in those countries spend exactly that amount. But an American thinks about eight weeks salary, probably thinks that's a little bit punchy, and then adjusts a little down and says, well, I can't quite afford eight. I'll spend five or six. Eh? So you don't determine the exact amount people spend, but throwing in that completely irrelevant number, you affect what people actually end up doing. And so I went searching, what is the real mm. number that's spent in America? The Jewelers of America put out a report and they said the average American spends about $4,000 on an engagement ring, on a diamond engagement ring. If the average U.S. salary is just over 3000 a month or around 37000 a year, that would mean they're spending a little over a month's salary on wow. engagement rings. They w went on to say that you've got to account for ultra wealthy, pushing up the average income. But to your point, they're spending somewhere between a month to two months salary, all given by an anchor from yeah. the De Beers company. Which is insane. Why would you listen to a salesman who has a very obvious vested interest in right. how much to spend? Right. But the principle of anchoring is it's just throwing out any number that people take that as a starting place. They will adjust, but they don't adjust enough. And De Beers have literally made billions of dollars from that very simple insight. And to build on that, they also understand that their consumer is in a vulnerable moment, right? The buyer is trying to show their love for their partner. Yeah. And having never bought a diamond before, they have no frame of reference. You're absolutely right, I think, on that point of having no frame of reference, buying, I would say, in a situation of uncertainty. Or buying in a situation of high emotion and uncertainty. Yes, so there's, um, there's a, I think you're probably right on both those elements. They probably act uh, cumulative in the same direction. Yes. But there was a wonderful debate between the two economists when behavioural science first kind of reared its head, or behavioural economics first reared its head. So there was an English economist called Ken Binmore, and when some of the work of Kahneman Tversky had first come out, he was slightly dismissive. He said, look, all these nudges, these biases, they might work when consumers are buying bags of crisps or cans of Coke, when they are trivial purchases, when people don't have a vested interest to think things through clearly. But he said they're not going to work when we're talking about buying diamond rings or houses or cars. And classical <laughs> economist point yeah, of view. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Because suddenly so much money is at stake, surely people are going to think Rational. deeply and rationally. But Richard Thaler, who went on to win the Nobel Prize, I think in 2018 or 2019, he said, look, Ken, you've got this completely the wrong way around. When uh, people are buying cans of Coke, they do it so regularly, they know their preferences. When they buy diamond rings or they buy cars or they buy houses, they do it so irregularly, they don't have personal knowledge mm. to fall back on. They know that they don't know. And it's in that situation of uncertainty that some of these biases become particularly powerful. So you're right. The anchor that they used was very, very powerful, I think mainly because it was this situation of uncertainty and therefore people are more open to being steered.
Speaking of uncertainty and a little bit of nervousness, as we come to the end of the episode, Richard, I thought it might be fun for our listeners to hear a little bit of our own engagement stories. Without asking Jane, your wife, (laughs) her permission, uh, will you share your engagement story with the listeners? So I proposed to Jane in Highgate Woods, Uh which is in North London. And then I think afterwards we went for fish and chips at the local chip shop, I love and then had a bottle of champagne and fish and chips in the park. So a nice mix of the everyday <laughs> and the fancy, which I always think And the was there place. a diamond ring involved? There was a diamond ring. Uh-huh. I'd been down the day before with my brother to, there's a, there's a row of jewellers yes. in London called Hatton Garden. You know, loads and loads of jewellers all next to each other. So we went down there to buy the ring the day before. Beautiful. Mm. Beautiful. And you? How do you? I got engaged to Erica, my wife, 53 weeks to the day after we met, because she told me I couldn't do it until after a year. At the spot where we met for our first date, and yeah, a diamond ring. Very nice. From the Manhattan Diamond District, just like you okay, went yeah. to your diamond yeah. district. I went to mine, and it was it was everything that you would think it was. It yeah. was, you know, meant to be a symbol of my commitment. Yes. The other thing that sticks in my mind is uh, when you go to those areas of jewelers i can remember they give you these giant trays like to look at the diamonds and they're like oh you t- take it outside you know have a look in the light and you're like you're just giving me thousands upon thousands of pounds are you, are you sure uh, but you go out and you think this is weird that someone's just giving me all this diamond that i could just run off with but you look around the street and there are an awful lot of burly men with earpieces <laughs> dotted along the streets there's their own security guards around fascinating there's none of that ah. in at least new york's diamond district yeah. you go behind a locked room behind okay. a locked room and a lot of looking at things through microscopes okay which makes you wonder Will you ever really see the difference in yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the grades of diamonds? <laughs> it felt so important at the time. And, God, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but this is the, the things you learn as you go through life. So Richard, like we like to do at the end of every episode, we want to sum it up for our listeners. What are the big takeaways from this episode? It's three big things. The first is a little bit of linguistic quirkiness can be your friend. The If you make it slightly hard for people to understand what you're saying and they're prepared to put that effort in, so there's a balance to be struck, then you make that idea more memorable. Mm -hmm. So a diamond is forever, trumps a diamond, lasts forever. The second thing is this idea of anchoring the broad idea that when people weigh up the value of a product, they are not just thinking about the inherent qualities of the product, part of what they're influenced by is superfluous data. Mm. So if you throw out a really big number before someone considers your product, you can increase their their willingness to pay. The third key point from the episode is don't think behavioral science is just there for trivial purchases. The work from Thaler suggests that very big purchases, because they're infrequent, they are particularly influenced by behavioural science biases because people don't have their own experience to fall back on and therefore they look at what the others have done or they look for some of these cues like anchoring. Well, thanks everybody for tuning in today and for being with us for another episode of Behavioural Science for Brands uh, where we decode the science behind the art. 
I'm Michael Aaron Flicker. And I'm Richard Johnson. If you enjoyed our show today, give us a good rating, leave a review. And if you are trying to use behavioral science with your brand or at your company, let us know about it. Connect with us on social or shoot us an email at hello at theconsumerbehaviorlab.com. Behavioral Science for Brands is brought to you by Function Growth, Ad Age's 2023 Newcomer Agency of the Year. Function Growth uses behavioral science to supercharge growth for direct-to-consumer brands. They operate across a wide spectrum of services as a one-stop shop and integrated strategic partner for brands with high growth potential. Unlike typical agencies, Function Growth leverages shared risk and reward compensation models, meaning they only make money when your brand grows. Reach out to them if you'd like to unlock the power of behavioral science to accelerate growth for your brand.